This morning, there's a man I'd like to tell you about, a man named Herman Gunkel. Does anybody know about Herman Gunkel? One? Good. All right. So some people learned a few things, and I'm glad. Uh, isn't that a great name, Herman Gunkel? But before I tell you about him, I'd like to tell you about two groups that I wish also could meet Herman Gunkel. The first group I'd like to introduce to Mr. Gunkel is conservative Christians. As many of you know, I spent a lot of time in my childhood in conservative Christian congregations, and there was a lot of emphasis on belief. Believing doctrines on Good Friday, such as things like the necessity and efficacy of the substitutionary atonement. If you're not sure what that is, it's, it's really okay. You may not want to know. Or believing doctrines on Easter, such as the literal bodily resurrection. And a frequent defense of these doctrines, you may have heard this one, is oral tradition. That is, I frequently heard in my childhood that we know that these doctrines are true about Jesus because they were passed down through oral tradition. But it's not true historically that pre-modern people had some specially honed talent for passing down memorized oral stories without altering them. Both then and now, we find that rumors, lies, and embellishment are interdispersed with good intentions, fact-checking, and evidence-based thinking. We need only look to the recent 10th anniversary of the war in Iraq to see a contemporary example of how widespread and long-lasting the consequences can be of misinformation. For all these reasons and many more, I am suspect of the argument that oral tradition can be a defense for belief about what did or did not happen three days after Jesus' crucifixion or on the third day. A second group I'd like to introduce to Mr. Herman Gunkel is a group sometimes known as the mythicists. And the mythicists are those who hold the belief that not only is the resurrection story a myth, but also that the historical Jesus himself is a myth, that Jesus never existed. Now, one advantage of being a Unitarian Universalist is that if it were somehow proved definitively, however you would do that, that the historical Jesus never existed, that his whole life was fabricated whole cloth, I would find that revelation to be both surprising and fascinating, but not devastating. However, my understanding from reading current scholarship is that that possibility is highly unlikely. I can, however, see the appeal of mythicism. For individuals and groups that are weary, that are bone dry weary of conservative Christians denying evolution, denying the age of the universe, denying climate change, denying the equality of women, the legitimacy of same-sex marriage, or the need for comprehensive sex education. For such individuals and groups who are fed up with conservative um, religiosity of of all stripes, not just Christians, denying evidence-based thinking, How delicious is the prospect of being able to say not only that the resurrection never happened historically, but that Jesus never existed. I mean, it's it's delicious. I mean, I can see the appeal there. But now I'll get to Hermann Gunkel shortly. But to say more about my skepticism toward the mythicists, I would also like to introduce you to a man named Jonathan Z. Smith. 
Now, if you don't know Jonathan Smith, if you've never met him, he's sometimes known as Jay-Z Smith, I really encourage you to Google image him. So Google him and then click at the top of the screen on image. He is a crazy-looking Gandalf professor. Uh, like, I mean, it's really, he's really, really worth looking at. Uh, and as many of you know, one of my passions is trying to bridge the academy and the local congregation. Too often, scholars only write for one another. And the latest scholarship doesn't always reach the general public. Fortunately, UUs are among, uh, among a small number of groups that are really open and curious about the latest scholarly breakthroughs. And regarding the resurrection stories of Jesus, Jay-Z Smith's work is a really interesting study in the difference between cutting-edge scholarship and general public knowledge. Smith is, again, a distinguished uh, scholar of religion at the University of Chicago. But let me back up one step briefly. To oversimplify for the sake of time, most of the misinformation about the historical Jesus himself being merely a myth is rooted in a book by a man named James Frazier called The Golden Bough that was published, it was published in a number of editions but first published back in 1890. And it really helped popularize this idea that the story of Jesus' resurrection is derivative of pre-existing pagan myths, myths of God's dying and coming back to life. And later interpreters then extrapolated from there that the whole Jesus narrative didn't have any grounding in historical reality, any more grounding than Egyptian, Roman, Greek tales of gods. But Jay-Z Smith did what scholars at their best do. He actually went back and closely read the historical record. In contrast to people you know, basing their opinions on what they think the texts say or what they've been told the texts say. And I can attest from my own reading of Smith's scholarship that he is nothing if not meticulous. My strongest impression of his work is that approximately half of each page of his essays are dominated by footnotes. But the upshot is that Smith read Fraser's book closely as well as all the original texts about gods such as Adonis and Baal and Otis, Osiris, Tammuz, Demuzi, especially the ones that predated the first century, uh, the first century dates of the historical Jesus. And he concluded that the category of dying and rising gods, once a major topic of scholarly investigation, must be understood to have been largely a misnomer based on imaginative reconstructions and exceedingly late or highly ambiguous texts. All the deities that have been identified as belonging to the class of dying and rising deities can be subsumed under two larger classes of disappearing deities or dying deities. In the first case, the deities return but have not died. And in the second case, the gods die but they don't return. There are no unambiguous instances in the history of religions of a dying and rising deity. This is before the first century. To take only the common example of Osiris, that's the one you hear the most, Osiris, if you actually read the story, does not return to life. He becomes the popular ruler of the underworld. Now, that's not exactly returning to life. If you're told you can return to life, but oh, actually, you've got to stay down in hell. That's not, that's not exactly what, uh, what most people mean. So it seems that the idea of Jesus' resurrection did not derive from pagan notions of a god simply being reanimated. It derived from Jewish notions of resurrection as an end times event in which God would reassert control over the world. 
Smith's position has been widely accepted in scholarly circles, at least since 1987, which is when he first published um, his article in the very also influential Encyclopedia of Religion. So yes, there are strong, undeniable resonances between the pagan themes of spring, new birth, new life, and the resurrection, but it's much more likely that Easter came to be celebrated in the spring um, to compete and coincide with the Jewish celebration of Passover, not to compete and coincide with pagan celebrations of spring. Those were the sort of concerns of the early Christians, was competing with their siblings, the Jews, so to speak, not with the pagans. Now, it's relatedly unhelpful to overemphasize that the word Easter comes from the name, name of the pagan goddess Estra. Now, that's true. Uh, the etymological link, though, has much more to do with the Germanic influence on English. If we were in Germany this morning, you'd be hearing Froa Osten. Now, somebody's going to correct me on my German later, but that's okay. You'd be hearing Froa Ostern instead of Happy Easter. And you can hear that common etymology in the goddess Estra, the German Ostern, and the English Easter. It's the same in the German Austin and our word East. But in most other European countries, um, if you were there this morning, you'd be much likely to hear an Easter greeting that's related to the Latin word Pascha, which is related to the Hebrew word Pesach for Passover. So again, that's... Uh, all that's to say that it's much more likely that Easter or Pascha came to be celebrated in the spring to compete and coincide with the Jewish celebration of Passover, not to compete and coincide with pagan spring rituals. Though, you know, maybe that's a bonus that uh, you got to compete with pagans and Jews. Now, having spent some time contesting both the overemphasis on oral tradition that some conservative Christians use to say that the resurrection accounts have to be true, uh, and having discredited at least partially, and I can discredit this um, further if, if you'd like me to later, the case that the historical Jesus is, made up, is a made-up fable based on pagan myths, I'd like to more formally introduce you to Mr. Herman Gunkel by way of inviting you to consider a way of viewing oral tradition that's more in line with modern scholarship. In the late 19th century, Hermann Gunkel was a German biblical scholar, and he entered a world of biblical scholarship in which the primary interpretive approach was called source criticism. That is, source critics sought to discern what were the written sources that were on the desk of those scholars. As people were writing the Bible, what sources did they actually have, pre-existing sources, on their desks as they were writing and editing the books that were eventually co collected into that anthology that we call the Bible? And following that common human urge to surpass one's predecessors, Gunkel tried to one-up his teachers. And he challenged biblical scholars to push farther behind the text, past the written sources to say, what about the oral sources? And how do we discuss and talk about those with some sort of rigor? And the name form criticism alludes to the forms or genres in which units of oral history would have circulated before they were all collected together. Units like parables, aphorisms, controversy stories, healing narratives, exorcism stories, natural wonder stories, calling scenarios, commissioning scenarios. Those would all have been circulating as these independent units before they were collected together. And various versions of those forms would have been in circulation before they were eventually written down. Now, 
it's hard to overemphasize what a difference that paradigm shift makes. Now, it may seem boring, but that, this was a landmark in biblical um, studies. Instead of the previous emphasis on the final form, people spend so much time concentrating on just what this, the Bible in our received form says. Um, Gunkel and his successors um, invite us to consider what the biblical stories might have looked like before that, as they were shared around campfires and in congregations like this one. And again, I know these details may seem a bit nerdy, but learning to read the Bible and other texts like it, having other tools like form criticism to to bring to your reading of the biblical text, it can really be transformative. It's it's almost magical, uh, and that may sound crazy, but when you start to read the, the text and you start to see the, the text almost float up from the page and imagine how it may have been different as it circulated. It, it's, it really can magically transform how you see this just straightforward text. Uh, suddenly you begin to see the text come apart at the seams and you can see these free-floating free units. It's almost like the, you know, pulling back the curtain and the mythicists want to say, you know, you pull back the curtain and there's nothing there. And what the form critics want to say is you pull back the curtain and you see this very human wizard. And that, to me, is really interesting. That very human wizard behind the curtain of how we got to have that Bible. What, what motivated the stories that human told? What motivated what they decided to tell about Jesus and what they decided not to? So that studying that very human Jesus, uh, that very human wizard, is, is what form criticism can bring you. And as scholars studied oral history of all types, perhaps the most crucial discovery is that in almost all cases of these biblical stories, there is no original version to find. We're a very text-based culture, and people like to think there's this original version out there. There In most cases, there's no original version to find. In most cases... um, Jesus would typically have told the various parables, for example. He would have told them many times, in many different locations, and in significantly or slightly different ways based on the audience at hand. Similarly, Jesus' followers would have told stories about Jesus. They would have told them many different times, in many different locations, in slightly or significantly different ways based on the audience at hand. And Jesus' followers would have grouped together his teachings and the events in his life in different ways based on the needs of the gathered community. So that's precisely, again, what happened. That's why we have four Gospels, right? I think that people that really love the Bible, they don't appreciate that. They don't see that we don't just have one Gospel. We have four. And that's because there were all these different stories circulating in these different communities that were doing them for different reasons. So each of these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they gather these independently circulating forms of Jesus' material, parables, aphorisms, controversy stories, and the other, and they collect them in different ways according to what their community needed. Now, as a contemporary example, think of political stump speeches in which politicians weave together and interchange various elements of an ever-evolving speech, depending on the audience. Or think of Bob Dylan, another master of the oral tradition, who subtly plays with and interchanges lyrics based on the occasion and the audience. Now, precisely how the four Gospels are interrelated is a bit more complicated. 
But the important point for this morning is that when the stories that Jesus told and the stories later told about Jesus were written down, they lost their original fluidity. And they really did have an original fluidity. For example, a parable in the oral tradition could be adjusted, again, based on the circumstances. But once it was written down in a final form, that form was often Um, often seen to apply to all audiences, in all places, at all times, and that's a huge difference. To give one specific example, the historical historical Jesus scholar, John Dominic Crossan, likes to point out that if you were to read aloud the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, we only have one version of that parable in Luke, even reading it slowly and with enunciation, it'd be unlikely to take you more than, say, 60 seconds at the most to read that entire parable. But he cautions that we make a common but uh, significant mistake when we imagine that Jesus would have taken a minute or less to have told that parable. The version of the Good Samaritan that runs for only eight verses in chapter 10 of Luke is less than 200 words. That's approximately the length of many newspaper letters to the editor. But Crossan says that we need to learn to see parables in the Bible as written plot summaries, not transcripts of an oral performance. If you look closely at Luke's version, you'll notice that the word Samaritan, the most important word in that parable, only occurs one time in that entire um, parable. Had Jesus told it like that, a cough from the audience would have ruined the whole story. So consider the version of um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the Monty Python film Life of Brian, in which, so some of you know this, uh, in which a distracted bystander mishears Jesus' teaching that blessed are the peacemakers. He hears it as blessed are the cheesemakers. The cheesemakers, exactly. A debate then breaks out between an incredulous person who asks, what's so special about cheesemakers? To which another person says, well, obviously it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturer of dairy products. (laughs) And you can see how in that version that then got passed down in oral tradition, people end up debating this totally wrong version. So to avoid this precise problem, Crossan says, based on his study of oral tradition, that an oral audience, they would have interrupted Jesus with questions and objections, comments and disagreements. Instead of a 30-second version of the Good Samaritan parable, as we see in the Gospel of Luke, Crossan writes, give Jesus an hour, not just a minute, for that story. After all, they didn't have cable or the internet back then. So there's a lot more to be said about form criticism, um, the oral history of the stories told about Jesus, the oral history of the stories that Jesus told. But for now, on this Easter morning, I want to skip ahead to the question that John Dominic Crossan says, that if we learn, get adept at form criticism, what question might might we ask on Easter Sunday? And he says about the resurrection accounts. And his question, through the lens of form criticism, is how many years is Easter Sunday. How many years was Easter Sunday? With this question, he means to problematize any claims that there were first-person witnesses of a bodily resurrection that were then passed down essentially unchanged from person to person and group to group until they were written down verbatim and, again, unchanged in the Gospels and then read essentially unchanged to this very Easter Sunday morning. Instead, he invites us to consider that Easter Sunday was years in the making. 
both for the date of Easter, which, as far as we can tell, was not set until the, at least the first century. That's, again, kind of a story for another time. That we, you know, we really have no idea when, you know, the month, the day, the year that Jesus was born, the month, the day, the year that he died. We can probably during Passover, we're not sure which one. So that, that starts to get into the haziness of the historical record. But just as people today have um, what they claim to, as, as to have been very real visions and experiences with loved ones after those loved ones dies, often recently or soon after their loved ones have died, there are many similar theories about how similar experiences um, led in the telling and the retelling to the written versions of the resurrection accounts that we have in the Bible. And again, there's a lot more to be said about adjudicating between the various theories on how the resurrection accounts originated. But for this morning, I want to return to a point I made at the beginning of this sermon about the amount of time that has been spent and the amount of ink that has been spilled defending the veracity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And although it matters to me what people believe, what matters much more to me is what people do. We UUs have a shorthand motto for this distinction. We say that we value deeds, not creeds. Or similarly, you'll hear us say, we don't have to believe alike to love alike. I made a distinction last week between creed, which emphasizes we believe, and covenant, which emphasizes we unite, that around which we unite. And I have no interest in counting up the number of people around the world this morning who would be willing to stand up without crossing their fingers and recite part of the Nicene Creed, such as the line that says, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. But I am interested in what it might mean to explore those inflammatory final two words in the Wendell Berry poem that we heard earlier. Do you remember them? Do I remember them? Practice resurrection. What would it mean to consider the Easter story from the standpoint of deeds, not creeds? What would it mean not to believe in the resurrection, but to practice resurrection? If you go back and read that, which is different from resuscitation, but that, that gets into another whole subpoint. I think people miss that. So there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection, but anyway. Uh, if you go back and read that Barry poem, which I'll include in the manuscript version of this sermon that I'll post on the, our website, I think you'll see some strong examples from Barry of what it might look like to practice resurrection. But I want to leave you with a similar sentiment from the theologian Peter Rollins, who has a powerful monologue in which he speaks to what it might look like to practice or fail to practice resurrection. Rollins begins with an assertion that he knows will shock his audience, which in his case were all practicing Christians. He says, Without equivocation, without hesitation, I fully and completely admit that I deny the resurrection of Christ. This is something that anyone who knows me could tell you, and I'm not afraid to say it publicly, no matter what some people may think. I deny the resurrection of Christ every time that I don't serve at the feet of the oppressed, each day that I turn my back on the poor. I deny the resurrection of Christ when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden and lend my support to an unjust and corrupt system. But there are moments when I affirm the resurrection, few and far between as they are. I affirm it when I stand up for those who are forced to live on their knees, when I speak to those for those who have had their tongues torn out, when I cry for those who have no more tears left to shed. 
This morning, I'm not concerned if you believe in the resurrection, but I challenge you to practice resurrection. What within you aches to be reborn? Who around you desperately needs renewed hope, a new word of encouragement, a new perspective, a new lease on life? Barry says, every day, do something that won't compute. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Practice resurrection.